Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Murking fool, like squirtle and cake boo Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman This week, I've been thinking about living life to the fullest, facing our fears and the limits of external and internal expectations. I've been thinking about the process of growth and how often we cut our potential short somewhere along the way to success and fulfillment. I've been thinking about the process of discovering who we truly are and who we can be. My guest today is author and thrill seeker Bernadette Murphy. And she's got a better word for the thrill-seeking part, scientific. We'll come to that later. Her most recent book is Harley and Me, Embracing Risk on the Road to a More Authentic Life. She has published three previous books, including the bestseller, Zen and the Art of Knitting. She was the L.A. Times Weekly Book Critic for six years, raised three fabulous children, and is currently a professor at Antioch University in the writing department. Her personal narratives and essays have appeared in numerous publications, including L.A. Weekly and the San Francisco Chronicle, and she can pick up a 500-pound-plus motorcycle all by herself. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Ellie. It's so nice to be here with you. And this is actually very apropos because it's our second try at this. We just have been recording for 24 minutes and we, we lost it all. And it's never happened to me in four years. And I was feeling very deflated. And Bernadette said, it's okay. We're going to do it again. It'll be even better. And Absolutely. I think that's the attitude that, that has taken her through these last years of her life to this wonderful place that she is now and then shared it with all of us so we can have the tools that she found and discovered and, and perfected to be able to get somewhere um, wonderful as well. So I want to start with asking about the title of your previous book and um, wondering if you had been familiar with Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I, I was familiar with it, um, had read that book when I was younger, and in fact, the author of it just recently died, Robert Persig, and I wrote a profile um, and a tribute to him that ran in uh, a literary hub, uh, tying together the book that I did on motorcycles and knitting, the Zen and the Art of Knitting, because there was a thread, no pun, that connected the two, even though it seems like knitting and motorcycles are very unrelated, there was something um, underlying the mindfulness that's involved in both knitting and motorcycles that um, he helped me see. And I feel great gratitude to him. I love your puns. And you, you had a pun about the vehicle of the motorcycle <laughs> when we were talking before. And I think that's so telling. It, it tells about your approach as far as your humor and your ability to find the humor in things, but also the depth of the relevance of your uh, experience with literature and in, in writing. Yeah, yeah. So I want to start with what I had referred to as a minor um, element of our, our interview, but that is a joke because it is just enormous, um, which is the path to transformation and the road it takes to achieve it. I think that will run throughout our conversation because it is the literal and the, the metaphor as well. Um, and you talk about that a bit in the book as that there ha you can't work all this out in your mind. You right. have to physically be experiencing it to build self-confidence and self-esteem. Right. 
Right. So um, Harley and Me is the story that I wrote because I learned to ride a motorcycle at age 48. And I was someone who was the last person you would have thought would get on a motorcycle. I was already mad at one of my sons who had bought a motorcycle and thought, this is crazy. This is stupid. And I took a class because I was researching a character for a novel I was working on. And when I found I could get the motorcycle to skim the blacktop gracefully, I, I felt powerful and brawny and beautiful and graceful all all in the same moment and it showed me that there was information about myself that I could love a motorcycle for example that I didn't know that and I thought well if I don't know that about me now at age 48 after I've lived all these all these years and been a, a wife and a mother and um, a professor and all the things I had done if I don't know that about me what do what else do I not know about me and so the book became a exploration on how risk taking and getting out of my comfort zone was a way to transform me and to more fully inhabit the person I really am. And did it open up an entire universe of new opportunity as far as thinking if this motorcycle wasn't something you had ever envisioned yourself um, having a relationship with or filling such a superb role in your life? Did you start noticing things all around you that you thought that could be the next big thing? I did. I did. And if anyone were to follow my Facebook page, you'd think I'm a little crazy because I go from one thing to another because it, it showed me the benefits to be found in um, trying out new things, trying out things that I'm not good at. Uh, I spent most of my life only doing things that I knew ahead of time I'd be good at, or I could practice somewhere quietly where no one would see before anyone else could, would know I was doing that. And this taught me that it's okay to not be good at things, it's okay to fail at things, um, and to still find joy in the process. And when I could tap into the joyful side of it and be excited about what I was learning, I found that rather than not being able to learn how to do the thing I was afraid I might not be able to do, I started building skills that one built upon the next, built upon the next, and suddenly I was doing far beyond what I thought I was capable of. So let's talk about that a little bit in, in relationship to other women and something I think that is pretty universal, that women feel only confident when they are um, going to be good at something and also the, the societal pressure to look perfect and do things perfectly. Yes. Uh, and, and you mentioned some of the scientific studies in your book, and there are multiple, that have shown that, you know, women's self-confidence and sense of self-ability um, is really undermined. Absolutely. And I mean, it's very a part of who we are. And until we take it apart and sort of question, why do I believe this, we will be... Um, dictated to by the these subconscious thoughts that are in our head. Um, for instance, uh, if, if a woman is applying for a job, she will want to know she has every single qualification that's listed in the job description and, and more than that before she'll actually fill out an application. Whereas a man may only have 50 or 60% of those qualifications and he will go ahead and apply for it. We see this across the board with um, women being afraid to ask for raises, with them not putting themselves forward, with them grading themselves on a scientific test 
test as only known, knowing, say, 70% of the questions. Men would grade themselves as knowing like 95%, and in reality, they knew the same amount. But women tend to think we know less. So much of the society pressure on us is to, as you said, to look good, to be nice, to not make waves, to um, be pretty, to be all these things. And w there's no way anyone can be all those things. So we're always feeling like we're behind, we're not good enough. And therefore, why put myself in this position where I might be rejected, whether it's, you know, for a job or something with my career or with a relationship or whatever it is, why risk that rejection? Um, I'll just I'll just stay quiet and small over here, and no one will notice me. To me, I think the the jaw dropping example was that of nurses, because I thought, okay, well at least nurses, right? <laughs> women, and one thing that we have always been allowed to do, we can be a nurse. And even with the nurses, the men were making something like seven thousand dollars more per year in private nursing, and three to four thousand in public nursing. Absolutely. And it, what's what's really interesting about that is that, um, oh, I've lost my train of thought. Well, we were we were talking about that the, <laughs> the women don't have the self-confidence to either really objectively um, right. assess their abilities and then they don't have the confidence to ask for what they're worth. Right. So when we think of things of like the pay gap, um, what is it? It's said that women earn, what, 86 cents on the dollar, that some of that is societal, that, that this is what um, our society pays women. But some of that is internalized. We think we're, we're worth less. So we ask for less. We don't demand more. We don't stand up for ourselves. Um, and as long as we do that, then we will continue perpetuating the cycle of not getting paid appropriately. So in the nurse case, they looked at a traditionally female field and found that even in that, where women usually have an advantage because there's so many of them who have already gone into it, that men are still vastly overpaid in that field. And so that's surprising. And I don't think we can blame it all on society. Some of it is how much do we believe in ourselves? I've heard it said that um, when a man succeeds in business, he will credit his own hard work and initiative. And when a woman succeeds, she will say that she was lucky. And, and that maybe that her team, you know, was just yeah, was yeah. part of the team, you know, yeah. give, give away the the um, the praise and and the the value. Right. So right. let's talk a little bit about motorcycles, and I want to yeah. set the stage a little bit okay. as far as um, a 2013 study that found that a motorcycle greatly improves a woman's overall self worth, and it definitely did that for you. And yeah. I'm wondering, sort of. What led you to the motorcycle if this wasn't something that you had ever been really drawn to? And then in what sense did connecting with it uh, elevate your self-worth? Well, I came to it because I was researching this character, thought I'd just spend a weekend doing this, and then that would be it. I would I would do this one scary thing, and it would be over. Um, and yet when I found that I could master something, oh, master is too strong of a word, but be able to control something. You've just done that because I, I am certain that you have mastered it. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe now I've mastered But at that time, when I was brand new to it, I certainly was far from having mastered it. But I thought that I was able to control this big brawny machine that looked to me like you needed to be this a big strong man to do it and when I found I could do it that it was less about strength than it was about balance and grace and um, precision 
then I was like, wow, that, that felt really good. I felt strong. And I'm someone, I'm, I'm very slightly built. I have very little upper body strength. I'm not someone that you would look at and think, boy, boy there's a strong woman, right? Um, to find I could do something that I correlated with, with massive strength was incredibly empowering. So I wanted to have more of that feeling of, of that strength, of a sense that, that I could be a little brawny. Then after I learned the very basics of it, I started, I got motorcycle boots and a leather jacket and I would put them on and my spine would get straighter and I'd walk taller and my shoulders would be held back. And the people in my neighborhood, the, the neighbors, the, the parents at my kid's school, the people I'd see at the grocery store looked at me differently. And I thought, wow, they see me as this stronger, more expansive woman than I picture myself, maybe I can grow into that image. Maybe that be can become the template that I can now fill out. And not only be able to grow in it, but did, when you put the boots on and those clothes on, did you feel a little bit internally of what yeah. externally people were seeing in you that you kind of felt a little tougher, a little more capable, a little more badass? Exactly. It's, it's like the, the adage, you fake it till you make it. Right. So I put on the boots, I put on the jacket and I'm sort of playing this role. There's almost this dress up uh, quality to it. But but as I inhabit that character, I start to believe it. And suddenly I have the this sense of self and the sense of strength that I didn't have before. There's a wonderful TED talk on um, uh, body language. And they tell women before they go into ask for a raise or an interview to go into the bathroom and take a Wonder Woman pose for a moment or two or raise your hands above your head in a, you know, just cross the finish line pose. And that there's something in the physicalness of doing that that convinces your brain to get on board with this image of yourself. And that physiologically releases yes. um, other hormones that support that sense of strength that other people can actually see from outside. Absolutely, absolutely. And more importantly, we start to believe it ourselves. And when we believe, because the truth is we are stronger than we believe. We are more capable and more competent than we believe. So it's a matter of sort of tricking ourselves into recognizing what already exists. You know, that men already know, but women, for whatever reason, we, we need a little help to get there sometimes. And so how scary was it just that first step of signing up for the class and then actually showing up on the first day? It was terrifying. The whole night before, I could not sleep. I kept waking up thinking, this is crazy. I'm insane. Um, they had asked me to wear boots and to have a jacket and gloves. So I put on um, backpacking boots because I didn't have motorcycle boots. The jacket I brought was a bright yellow highlighter yellow um, running jacket because I thought people would see me, you know, I was afraid I might get hit. Um, and then I had gardening gloves because I did not have any of the gear, but, um, but I showed up with my heart pounding and thinking, Oh, I don't, I'm going to be the person who drops the bike. I'm going to be the person who fails the class. I'm going to be the one who kind of slinks away when it's, when it's over and, and never want to show my face again. And the truth was, I was on par with everyone else there and suddenly able to do this thing I didn't think I was capable of doing. So what do you think got you over that precipice of, I don't have any of the right gear, I'm looking like a dork, um, yeah. I can't do this, and I'm terrified. So you made the choice. You didn't say, so that means, you know what, I'm just not going. Um, you went. But it, good, good point. You know what I think it is? I, I have... a a very strong amount of curiosity. 
And I think I was more curious to find out what this experience is like than I was afraid of failing at it. And as long as I can keep that um, ratio in my head when I'm doing other things that scare me, that I'm just going to go try this out because I'm curious. I want to know what it's like. It'll be an interesting story to tell at a cocktail party. You know, maybe that's all I get out of it, but I'm curious to know. And as long as I'm curious, I'm less concerned with what do other people think of me? Am I going to make a fool of myself? Am I going to fail at this thing? Because failure wasn't the point or success or failure wasn't the point. The point was to explore and see what this feels like. One thing that I think is so enlightening that you detail in the book is the idea that when you're mastering a skill, that it is step by step, and that with each step you master, you build more self-confidence, which then allows you to tackle the next more difficult step. So first step was signing up for the class, showing up, sitting on the bike. Um, But throughout this process, you had other first steps, getting gas for the first time, going on the freeway. (laughs) Right, right. Something as simple as getting gas was so overwhelming to me. It was ridiculous. Um, The first time I went on the freeway, I literally went from one exit to the next exit and got off as fast as I could and then just had to sit there sort of dripping in sweat and panting and like, oh, my God, I don't know if I can ever do that again. And then the next time I did it, I went two exits before I got off. And I would actually challenge myself, you know, on a given afternoon, let's go ride the freeway and see if you can make four exits or maybe five and just slowly, slowly, slowly build up. And then I'm, I'm riding across either across LA to commute for work or I'm riding across the country um, on back roads because I'd built those skills. But had I on the very first day said, oh, I'm going to, you know, do some epic trip, I would have freaked myself out. It would have been too much. But if the goal was only to learn to ride from here to 20 feet away and, um, and not fall down, that's, that's a doable goal. And I'll start there. And there's this dance between the internal in your mind telling you what you can or can't do. There's this subtle interplay. Maybe it's not subtle. Maybe it's it's a, a stick hitting us on the head. But this balance between the internal dialogue of can we do something? Is it okay to do something? Um, will I be able to do it? With and and maybe talking ourselves into it, that yes, you'll survive the class, you're going to go, with the necessity of taking a physical action. And you talk about that and demonstrate that throughout the book, that we can't work this all out in our heads, that we have to take physical action. Yes, we we can't um, think ourselves into right action, we can only act ourselves into right thinking. Um, is, is an adage that I like to, to use, that until I've had the experience of something, um, I can't get over my fear of it. So for example, I was afraid to learn to rock climb, and I was mostly afraid to fall while rock climbing. And the first time I fell while rock climbing, which was I'm in a harness, um, it, it scared, scared the crap out of me, but I was unharmed, I was okay, and the harness had worked and I was safe. And that realization of, oh, I can approach the thing that scares me the most and find out it's really not as bad as I thought it it was going to be, then emboldens me that I can do all kinds of um, bigger, scarier things. So now when I rock climb, my fear level is much lower than it used to be because I've experienced sort of what's the worst that can happen. And it happened and it was all okay. It wasn't as bad as I thought. So by taking physical risks, I train myself to know how to handle physiologically 
um, the feeling of fear when, when, um, my sweat glands start, you know, excreting all the sweat and my heartbeat races. Um, I know how to sort of breathe and, and calm myself down and walk myself through it. And that's not only helpful in the physical realm, but it's actually for me more helpful in the emotional and relationship realm when things in my life are not going the way I want them to and I don't have control over it when there's illness or when my father was dying or um, when um, injuries or illness happen to people that I love and care about and there's nothing I can do and I'm terrified about it. I know how to calm myself about that and get centered again because I've practiced it either on the motorcycle or with the rock climbing or with any of the experiences I've done that have scared me. I've had um, hands-on practice on how to do this and stay focused. And that comes in handy in every aspect of my life. So let's talk about the first fall on the bike. Okay. And I know that was something that had to have been in the back of your mind when you started on that first day, because not only is that going to hurt, but how am I going to get this thing back up? Right, right. Well, I've, uh, thank goodness, thank God, I have had very little experience of actually putting down bikes, but I did put down um, my first motorcycle twice. Once was in a, a, a gas station, and I was barely moving at like a mile an hour, and it slid out from under me, and someone came and helped me get it up. But then right after that, I was going on a um, back road mountain highway in Los Angeles out of cell phone reach. And I, I had gone up there to just practice my turns. I was still a very new rider. And I ended up putting the bike down in some gravel. And so it's on the ground and there's no one around. And I'm calling on the cell phone to get one of my sons to come help me. And I can't get a cell phone signal. And I realize I'm stuck here. And if I don't pick this motorcycle up, nobody's going to come along and help me. <laughs> and I had um, watched the video on how to do it. You actually back up to a bike and you use um, sort of a rocking technique to get it to leverage itself, to get it to stand up. Um, and um, it was an over 500 pound motorcycle and I weigh, you know, about 120 pounds. And I was eventually able to lift it up, which I would have thought is impossible. But um, that's been sort of the beauty of this. It keeps challenging me to do things that I don't think I'm capable of puts me in a situation where I really have to try with all my might. And then I find out, oh my goodness, I can do that. Now, that said, I don't want to have to pick that bike up ever again if I don't have to. It, it hurt like crazy the next day. Um, but I found out I could do it. And I think it becomes a metaphor for women. There's so many things that we're capable of, but that we don't believe we're capable of or we don't know we're capable of and so having physical experiences that get me to test out my hypothesis of what I think I'm capable of and find out that I'm wrong that I've undersold myself regularly is just so empowering and is good for all parts of my life and I hadn't thought about this when I was reading through the book but I love the beauty of the transgression that the first time it happened that there were people, you were in a public area, there were people there that helped you. You were not alone. Right. Um, people supported you and helped you and said, we should sit down and drink some water and we'll, we'll get right. this, this bike up together. And then once you'd done that, the next time, yep. you had a little time to kind of study it up a little more, get a plan going. And then yep. the next opportunity, you know, was like, nope, this is you now. I kind of I love how sort of the universe creates a curriculum for how I'm going to learn. And if I keep being willing to sort of take the next step, it can be very gentle in how it teaches me the lessons I need to learn. So, and and I was I was I was gently carried along through that. 
So let's talk about um, making the turn on the motorcycle and, and leaning in. Yes. And you said, to survive, we have to take the counterintuitive approach. Lean into what scares you with all your might. Throw your body into that turn, even when it feels like it will kill you. And you really mean that literally. You are throwing your body in the direction that you do not want to really go. Exactly. If you if you'll watch a motorcyclist, you'll see they lean the bike into the direction of the turn that they're making. And it feels when you're doing it like the bike's going to fall over. It can't possibly stay upright because you're 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 going to fall over. There's just no way around it. But if you don't lean in, you're going to make way too wide a turn and you're going to be going into inco- oncoming traffic. So you have to lean like that. And if you if you fail to, you won't you won't survive it. So it becomes a metaphor for me of all the things that I need to run towards, all the um, things that scare me that I need to um, negotiate with my fear and not let it take me hostage and and um, come up with a way to best it and um, make peace with it. And you have to give it the gas too, right? Yeah. Which is yeah. even scarier because yeah. I'm thinking about the two times you did fall. It was yeah. when you were not, not really going, going yeah. for it. Exactly. Not going fast enough is actually more of a reason to fall than going too fast. Um, Once you're going fast on a motorcycle, it becomes very easy. So um, there's, there's a great metaphor there as well. And it's the same true about life. When we hold back, when we think we can protect ourselves, when we think we can keep ourselves safe, that's actually when we're more likely to get hurt. But when we're willing to sort of fully commit and focus on what we're going to do and give it our all and, and completely throw ourselves into it, uh, our chances of succeeding are just much higher. There was a quote you have in the book um, from Pablo Picasso, and it says, I am always doing that, that which I cannot do in order that I may learn how to do it. Right. And you think of, of Picasso, and he's a pretty much, I think I'm going to do what I want to do, and he's, he's pretty self-confident. Um, so think about the relationship to women, and right. that there are special challenges that women face as far as having that bravado and really going for it. And I know there was an experience when you were younger, when you were at Disneyland, the happiest place on earth, and going to try out for their dance troupe. And right, what happened? Yeah, so- so I was I was trained as a dancer and wanted nothing more in my life than to be a professional dancer. Was already dancing with a couple of dance companies, and Disneyland was holding auditions, and I could go and um, earn as much as I was earning as a cocktail waitress back in um, where I was living. And I went to the audition, and as we're dancing, they would give us routines, and a instructor would come through and tap people on the shoulder to tell them, thank you, but goodbye, we don't want to see any more of you. And as people started to be tapped and asked to leave, I started being so concerned they were going to tap me and ask me to leave that I just voluntarily left because I was so afraid of the shame that would come from being asked to leave. So I will, I will make myself disappear before I give you the chance to disappear me. And I realized later that I had cheated myself out of a very valuable opportunity. I think I probably could have made that dance troupe. Um, but I, I wasn't willing to take the rejection. So I left and that had been my MO for many years before I started to ride the motorcycle. If I'm not going to be really great at it right off the bat, I'm not going to bother. And the motorcycle taught me it's okay to not be the best at it, 
to slowly build my skills, to get good enough to find joy in this thing and not have to be um, number one all the time, that it's okay to just do it because I find joy in it. I um, have been running marathons and I love running marathons and I'm not very good at it. I do not have fast times. I'm never going to have fast times. But the sense of accomplishment that I get in doing it is so fulfilling that I keep doing it. Um, as a younger person, that would not have been good enough. I would have had to have been competing against other people and their time to make it worthwhile. And if I couldn't get a fast enough time, don't bother. And now I'm finding that there's so many things in life that I've cheated myself out of by being afraid that I wouldn't be good enough and therefore not allowing myself to do it rather than just saying, you know what, I'm going to have fun with this and I'm going to get as much joy and learn as much as I can about myself in this experience. And there's no harm, no foul. I don't have to be, um, I don't have to set a certain expectation for myself. Well, it's almost that you're giving yourself permission to fail and then that gives you the courage to start. That Absolutely. then it makes it, it makes it safe in a way, even though it might be terrifying, but it's safe to at least try and have the courage to begin. Right. My um, favorite adage is fail better. It's a quote from Samuel Beckett, the writer, and he said, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. And my motto is if I can fail at something a little better every day, then, then I'm just continuing to grow. And that's, that's sort of my goal in life is to just fail a little better every, every day that comes along. And was riding the motorcycle sort of the, the major life lesson in maybe breaking it apart step by step and realizing that, yes, I don't know how to do that yet, but I'll learn this and then I'll learn that. And that really is a process that it isn't, I can ride a motorcycle or I can't ride a motorcycle. Right. right. And I wouldn't even say I'd look that far ahead. I would just make myself little tiny, tiny goals. And, and I could re-examine the, the quest tomorrow. If my goal today is to ride on the freeway and I make it to one exit, that's good enough for today. And tomorrow we'll see if I feel like doing two, but I don't have to set out where I'm going to break it down into 30 steps and I'll take one at a time. I can just, um, decide on a daily basis. Do I want to keep doing this or not? And, um, there's no pressure to that. I have to, that I need to prove something to anyone else that I need to prove something to myself. We'll just see if I'm continuing to find joy in it. And if I am, I'll take the next step. So we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with Bernadette Murphy about her most recent book, Harley and Me, Embracing Risk on the Road to a More Authentic Life. And when we come back, Bernadette, I want to talk about sort of the stage that was set around you beginning to ride the motorcycle and what was happening in your life and how all the factors were sort of interplaying in this experience. Great. I look forward okay, to it. Okay, good. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, Ketchum, listener-supported radio. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with Bernadette Murphy. And we are talking about uh, motorcycles, mostly, and life transition and fear and risk and how great they are in our lives. So let's talk a little bit about what was happening at that point in your life when you started this motorcycle class. Right. So I, I signed up for the class um, just on a fluke. And my father was dying of bile duct cancer at the time and was um, just been moved into hospice care. And I was um, in a marriage. Uh, I had been married 24 years at that time. And um, things were not going well. The first um, 10 or 15 years had been good. But for the previous 
nine to 10 years, things had not been good. And we had been in couples counseling and trying all kinds of ways to um, fix what was wrong. And I was at the point of believing it was not fixable. So having the combination of losing my father and walking through this, um, what was starting to look like might be a divorce, uh, was overwhelming and terrifying to me. And all the more reason I needed something in the world to tell me I was strong enough to walk through these things that, that I did not want to walk through, that I had um, hoped to avoid in life. But um, life will give us what it gives us, and we have to um, respond to it one way or another. You talk a lot in the book about the idea of, of the midlife crisis, and you sort of joke yes. about it a bit and say, you know, people were sort of pointing fingers saying, oh, it's midlife crisis. But I thought right. it was so wonderful that you reframe it as a question is, is this really a crisis or is it an awakening? Yeah, yeah, I, I see it now more as an opportunity. And I think that the term midlife crisis comes about because so many of us will hit this in midlife. It's to be expected. And it's the moment when life asks us, are you ready to kind of shut down and get smaller or do you still want to grow? Because if you still want to grow the opportunities there, we just need to find a healthy way to explore that. So I think that um, all of us, men and women, will hit that stage of life and we get to decide what we want to do with it. And you mentioned there's an unprecedented number of of women, people as men and women in midlife today. And so it is such a relevant topic. Yes. In addition to that, it's a little bit different for women, um, yes. because women typically in midlife are also experiencing huge changes in their body and in the eyes of society as far right. as their value and their purpose. Right. So um, as we hit midlife, our, our whole hormonal makeup changes and things like um, estrogen, which had turned me into a nurturing machine through the years that I was raising my children starts to drop off and I've got less interest suddenly in nurturing everybody. Go figure, you know? Um, and then oxytocin, which is the chemical we get when we hug people and cuddle and kiss. I had been getting a lot of oxytocin from my children as they had been growing and from my marriage. But as the marriage soured and my children started um, individuating and moving away, I wasn't getting that anymore. And so that hormonal shift in both those areas sort of primed me to look for something more that would fulfill those parts of me. Um, and societally, you know, women are known to, once we hit midlife, sort of disappear, that people no longer see us the way they saw us when we were younger. So it becomes really important that we um, see ourselves and honor that and find ways to keep growing and expanding ourselves rather than getting smaller and shutting down. Well, and there's a huge amount of shame around it, I think, in, in our culture. And yeah. another gift that you provide in the book is a reference to Sandra Singlow's article yes. in The Atlantic, where she says the change isn't really menopause. The change is fertility. That's the small exactly. piece of the puzzle. Exactly. If you look at a, a, the course of a woman's life, the, the years that she's fertile are actually the anomaly. Um, yet we tend to judge women by who they are during those years. And we set that as the standard that we want them to achieve forever. And it's unrealistic. It's during those childbearing years, whether we have children or not, we become much more nurturing. And we are chemically programmed to do that. 
once we leave that period of time and before we enter it, we are a little more like men, more willing to um, embrace what makes us interested, take care of ourselves, um, look into things beyond nurturing someone else. Um, so that that's really the anomaly, that caretaker, uh, good mommy role. Um, that's not that's not the sole end of who we are. Well, and that our whole sense of value and identity are yeah. focused on those few years, relatively, right. when we are meant to mate and pr- reproduce. Right, right, right. And who wants to be limited by that? You know, how many men do you know want to be seen as, you know, daddy to a young child for their whole life? You know, that's who you need them to be forever. Um, we, we, we are bigger and much more diverse and um, multitudinous than we are in that one period of time. But that may be something that we need to learn that we don't just know or that innately we knew and we've now forgotten. You had a, a statement in your book, and I'm hoping you no longer believe it, but, but I'm going to ask. You had said, a good mother doesn't leave her children. Right, right. You know, I still, I still struggle with that. When I, um, I was going through the divorce, and in order to do that, um, I was the one who had to leave. And um, my youngest was 17, so it's not like they were small children, but I still felt huge guilt and shame about um, having left them. And it turned out to be one of the best things I ever did. I ended up um, becoming self-empowered, uh, setting my own course in life, and modeling for them how we take care of ourselves, how we make sure that we are okay in the world and that we're surrounded with people who love us and um, support us. And that has had wonderful repercussions in their lives because I see them teaching me how to do these things now because they they understand that in a way that I didn't. I had grown up believing that my job was to be the best mom possible and to stay married no matter what and to really hang in there and that it was up to me to make the family structure work. And if it didn't work, it was my fault. And coming to realize that's not necessarily the case. I played a role, um, but I couldn't carry it alone. And um, there was great freedom in coming to the other side of that. Well, and that's another weight, I think, that women have traditionally carried, that there may be an unhappy marriage, and it may be the woman who finally is the one who's willing to take the risk and turn topple the boat so that everyone can get to shore, and yet then she's made out to be the person yes. who left, the person who's the bad guy. Yeah, and it's and it's still there. My my sister is still mad at me and told me when I, when I told her what was going on that you can't do something like that and expect people not to be mad at you. Um, and that has been the response from many in my family. And so, you know, we we learn to live with that and find the people we would like to invite into our lives who will um, support us and want us to be fully realized humans. You had said, embracing my life somehow threatens others' peace and security, but here I am. And I think here you are definitely for the better, and I would guess that so are your children. As as you said, you'd modeled for them and shown them this fabulous um, behavior to, if if you aren't happy, if things aren't good, let's not settle for the known and miserable, but let's take the risk. Right, right. And they, it's so wonderful to watch them because they've really embraced that philosophy and are doing amazing things because there is no shame in saying, that's not working, let's try something else. And um, being able to see that, but it took me a very long time to be able to model that without feeling the shame myself. 
Um, and I think in all areas of life, when when we're changing and we are embracing maybe a different version of ourselves and a different life path than the people around us I right. identify with and identify us with, it's threatening. And it's threatening for all sorts of reasons, right? Because then we're sort of asking them, are you happy where you are? Do you need to make a change? And we right. also, I think, they may feel that their life choices are now not validated if we aren't right. sort of willing to play along in the game. I think there's one fallacy of our, our society is that we strive as young adults to get our career in place, uh, marry and have a family if that's what we intend to do, um, you know, buy a home if that's what we want to do. We get all these things in place, the markers of adulthood. And once they're in place, they're supposed to now be set in place and trapped as an amber. There they are and nobody mess with it. Okay, so everything and now we should just skate through the rest of life. We should not have to worry about things. We should be able because all that's in place. And the reality is if we put things in place and leave them there and don't challenge anything and life doesn't challenge us, we start to to deteriorate. We have to grow. All human life has to grow and change or it dies. So um when we choose to do something that is stepping out of the role people see for us, um, it challenges the status quo and they want they want everything to stay in place because if you change now maybe I have to change or maybe I have to question myself and my um, uh, hesitation to change um, and so people don't like that and I ended up having you know a few friends and family members who kind of moved away from my life as a result of the changes I made. So I'm talk a little bit about, first I just want to recognize how brave that is of you <laughs> to, in spite of that, to still make the changes. And I want to talk about the, the biology of risk-taking and the Gray Divorces article that you had seen that really sort of seemed to give you that little push that you needed yes. to maybe take that yep. next step. Yeah, I was. I had read this article. It was funny. I saw the magazine when I'm waiting to go into couples counseling with my ex, and it talked about how more um, people over 50 are getting divorced now than ever before, and that th those divorces are usually initiated by the woman, and that that's happening because the women are realizing that I there's still time to build a life to maybe find true love to maybe have these experiences i don't have to stay married to this person forever when when the institution of marriage was first um, codified people were not living that long so to say till death to us part might have meant you know 10 15 20 years it didn't necessarily mean you know 60 years or some you know much longer span of time and um, if we choose to you know for those who have great marriages i applaud that and i i wish that that had been my case um, but it wasn't so my choice was either i stay with this in this situation, which felt settling, which felt soul crushing in a way, which felt incredibly lonely, or I take the risk and think there may be something on the other side of it. If, if not a relationship, it could just be a relationship with myself and a sense of um, knowing myself and doing the things I would like to do with, with the years that remain to me. And to find out, you know, I still have quite a few of them left, so I'm planning to use them as much as I can. It's it's such an interesting and, and large question. I think you had said, has my drive to become fully myself created my own loneliness? Yeah. And I think women have such a struggle with self-actualization and even creating the vision of who we truly are and who we might be 
and then our sense of connectedness. And yeah. I think that runs through the book. Um, yeah. And this going back and forth, how can I be myself? And to be myself, does it mean I need to be alone? And is it okay if I'm alone? What is my value as a woman if I'm alone? Exactly. Women are relational beings. We, we define ourselves in relation to other people. I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a daughter, um, I'm an employee, I'm a, you know, whatever, I'm a teacher. I am who I am in relation to other people. And the question started to become, who am I? If we take those out of the equation, they'll never fully be out of the equation, but who am I at a very core level? And I think men grow up thinking of themselves as themselves not necessarily in relationship all the time. Um, and for me, being when, when I left my marriage, I moved into a little um, above a garage, single apartment with a Murphy bed that pulled out of the wall. And it was the first time I'd lived on my own. I had raised my younger siblings as a, um, as a young person. My mother was, was ill, and I raised um, four siblings. And then I married and raised three children. And so for the first time in my life, I was alone and got to ask myself, you know, what would you like to have for dinner? What time should dinner be for you? You know, these questions that I'd never had the chance to ask myself before and to start to really know who I was and find sort of at my core this, this sense of strength that I had no idea was there. And you found some of this both solitude and sense of belonging on the motorcycle. Yeah, yeah. So what was on a, that like? I, it was wonderful when when you're I, I traveled across the country with my friend Emily. She's known as Rebecca in the book, but her real name's Emily. And um, we were two, you know, moms who had raised our kids who went cross country on a motor on motorcycles and just went to see what was out there. So there was a sense of being in um, community with her because we were picking from day to day where we're going and what we're going to do and how many miles are we going to get in today and where are we going to stay tonight. Um, and then there's the sense of being very alone on the bike, but in a good way, a very um, meditative, peaceful, mindful way. When you're riding a motorcycle, you really can't think about anything else other than what you're doing. And it makes your, your point of focus very laser sharp. And so to spend that, that many hours, we'd be on the bike eight or nine hours a day, um, that focused on just being present. And in that being present, feeling the sun on, on my um, skin, feeling the air, smelling the different smells, the, the hay fields and the corn fields and the things that we are passing, a split lemon on the road you could smell when trucks go by, what they smell like, just sort of being in that moment um, for hours at a time got me very comfortable with myself. But there was also the sense of community traveling with Emily. And then when you see other motorcyclists, you you signal to them. You might talk to them if you stop to get something to eat. And there's a bond that you have with these people immediately because you're you're both on bikes. Well, I loved that before you had done one of the first group rides and you weren't sure about if whether or not it was going to happen or not. And um, R R Emily couldn't go. And so you were maybe going right. to go home. And then one of the guys said, Oh, you know, honey, you better just head on home. And of course, you're like, Okay, well, now I'm doing the ride. <laughs> but but as as you got out there, the description you gave as sort of the sense of self, but the sense of being part of this entire organism yep. that was moving yep. down the road. 
Yeah, it's really cool when you ride in a group is you can tell someone's leading the group, but you can tell where the group's going to move by the body language of the person in front of you. Just the way they might move their shoulders a little bit, you know, they're going to make a turn to the right, they're going to move over a lane, they're going to um, and start to read that language. And um, it felt like we were almost like a flock of birds together, that sense of coordination between all of us. And it, it feels very graceful. I, it feels both graceful and powerful at the same time. And did you have the same sense when you were running marathons of sort of being a part, you know, you're, you're just a runner, but then you're also part of this running body. Exactly. And again, it was about being aware of, um, flaws is too strong of a word. My, my frailties as a human, I'm aware of it because I'm surrounded with other people who are dealing with their frailties as a, as a human at the same time. And we're sort of all in this human race together, trying to get somewhere, trying to encourage each other, um, trying to just be alive to the moment in community. Had I done those alone, I don't think I would have had the same sense of, um, belonging that I'm, that I'm part of the human race, that I shared the same frailties and the same strengths as everybody else. So there's been a 50% increase in um, motorcycle ownership by women in the last 10 years. And yeah. if, if you look at your experience and, and the, the place that the motorcycle has served in your life, you say something about you're not sure if you, that you may cease to exist without it. And kind of looking back now, you go from that first night staying awake when you're thinking about are you going to going to tip the bike and do okay to riding across the country and and really physically being challenged in all sorts of ways not just the ability to ride and stay awake and the weight of the bite but you had challenge upon challenge technical challenges weather challenges and yet you were just also entered into this new and and exciting and very different world of um, motorcycling and that part of the country. When you're looking back at it, sort of, are you still riding the bike? How is how is your relationship developed from then? I am still riding the bike. And I one of the things I love to do now is these um, all women motorcycle campouts, which has now become a big thing. So there's one called the dream roll that takes place in Washington State every year. And there's another one called babes ride out, which is in Joshua Tree. The one in Washington, I, I rode um, with Emily from Los Angeles up to Washington State for two nights to camp out under the stars with about, um, I'm thinking about 300 other female motorcyclists. Um, no men were invited, and it was really uh, magical because we had women from like 17 to great-grandmother ages all hanging out with each other and empowering each other as women and talking about um, how to make a path for ourselves when society has not provided us with that path, how to go off script in a way that is healthy and um, feels good. Um, so I continue to do things like that. I also continue to um, take on new challenges. I mentioned earlier that I've recently learned to rock climb and ice climb. Um, I learned to ski in the last couple of years. I'm in my 50s now. Um, most people would be hanging up their skis by now, but I'm, I'm trying to keep um, finding ways to tap into things that make me feel alive. And what, what was it like um, you're going through the divorce, you're entering into the motorcycle community. Um, from the outside, I think we look at that community and think that there's a lot of sexism there. Um, yes. 
there's this balance between having learned to maybe avoid the male gaze and and not even notice it from earlier in life when our primary goal is seeking the male gaze. How was that all um, shifting when you were riding motorcycles? Well, I have to say there is definitely a lot of sexism in the world of motorcycling, and um, but it is avoidable. You can choose the people you'd like to hang out with and find people who um, support women as fellow humans, not as someone who looks cute on the back of your motorcycle. Um, so I, w- I search out people who are like that. Um, and there's something about being um, tied into a community of women who ride that does, does make us feel stronger. Uh, one of the cool things about riding is for the most part, I feel like I'm sort of genderless when I'm on the motorcycle. I'm in, um, you know, a leather jacket. I've got a helmet on. You can't by just looking at me unless I've got a ponytail easily tell that I'm a woman. In fact, I got pulled over one time and, um, I think the police officer thought I was like a a teen boy. And when I pulled off the helmet, he was a little surprised. (laughs) Um, and did, and he didn't give me the tickets, uh, surprisingly, but, um, there's something about being feeling genderless that, that, um, is very freeing that I'm not trying to get the male gaze. I'm not trying to, um, prove myself as a sex pot. I'm just trying to be another human on the road. I'm wondering if there's an openness in that community, though, to really be and show off your your personal identity. You talk about on the ride you did cross country with one of the gals that rode with you, and she's got this Barbie bike. Yeah, you know, yeah. she's kind of Barbie-esque, and yeah. she's flaunting it in, in a really, I think, powerful way. She and it's so fun to be with her because she gets stopped by all the big burly male bikers who all want to take pictures with her Barbie bike. Um, And she's blonde and she's got a bubble gum pink helmet and pink gloves. And she just she loves that. She loves to be that. I like to sort of pretend I'm sort of genderless, but you can be either way as long as you find people who will support you. And I say that because there is a segment of the motorcycling community that um, is sexist and that thinks women should only be on the back and should be in high heels and should be in low cut tops. And, um, and that's, a segment I don't wish to, you know, be associated with. But there's a lot of young women, women in their 20s now, who are um, who are writing, who are doing all kinds of great work in this area, who are setting up rides all over the place, and they're working to empower each other. And they're not doing it to get the guys to look at them or to pay attention to them. They're doing it because it um, it makes them feel good. And I think maybe if truth be told, you a little bit of challenging the fawns in your Absolutely, absolutely. I so I had a big fascination with Henry Winkler and got to interview him for the book because I always wanted to be Fonzie. And um, the idea that those qualities exist in both men and women, and that they are there waiting to be discovered. And we had such a wonderful conversation with each other, and he was so supportive as I was working on this book. Um, but but recognizing that part of what made Fonzie so untouchable was that he had um, awareness of his of his himself he knew who he was at his core and he couldn't be shook from that and I think that was the quality more than any sort of male brawn I was after that sense of just knowing myself to my core and um, I, I'm getting there 
So I want to talk about your Aunt Betty in these last few minutes. And you had said it's about standing up for who I am and creating space for the people in their lives to do the same. And that really struck me that you didn't say it's about standing up for myself, but you said about for who I am. And I thought there's such a subtle but critical importance there in that distinction. Good point. I think who I am is something is who you are also. It it encompasses more than me. It's standing up for as a woman, I'm able to do these things. Therefore, other women are able as well. Um, Therefore, please respect us. Um, And that it is the work of not just it's not an individual story. Um, it's the story of how we all sort of help each other, how one of us stands on the shoulders of the ones who came before. And that part of my job as I'm standing on someone else's shoulders is to reach down and grab the hand of the next person who would like to come on up and help them um, make that move. And, and, and as you're talking, I'm thinking maybe another element as well, that maybe the, the self, the myself and the self that others are seeing isn't the whole story. Right, right. And we're, yeah, we're part of something bigger than ourselves. I mean, there is the self, but it's part of something larger, the, the human condition. Um, and that whatever happens with me is a reflection on the human condition as a whole. And if I view my story as part of that larger story, it's I'm just one cog in this whole, whole beautiful universe. And um, that standing up for myself gives my children the right to stand up for themselves, gives friends in my life, um, other people in my life, empowers them to do the same. And if I refuse to stand up for myself and I make myself small and fit myself in a little box, it tells other people maybe they should be doing that as well. And maybe too to stand up for the self that is, is not, has not arrived yet or that's deep underneath. Yeah. That, that, uh, that, that you can change, right? That what you're seeing now and who you see now is, is not who I may be tomorrow or who I, I actually really may be. Exactly. It's holding space for what could, could yet unfold, um, both for ourselves and for each other. You had said that our brains and bodies are biochemically programmed to thrive on change. Yeah. I mean, our brains, if, um, you know, there's a phenomenon called neuroplasticity and we can develop this and continue to work on it our entire lives, but it only happens when we challenge our brains to do things they've never done before or to take something to a new level. Um, and if we learn a new language, if we learn to um, play the piano, if we um, engage in something that, that is hard, that makes us struggle mentally, we develop new neural pathways. And if we stop doing that, the neural pathways start uh, pruning themselves. So um, the more that we challenge ourselves physically, emotionally, spiritually, creatively, um, and I'm not an advocate by any, by any uh, stretch of the imagination that everyone needs to learn to ride a motorcycle at all, or do anything physically scary. But we need to challenge ourselves in order to develop these skills in our body, in our brains that empower us for the next set of um, life circumstances that come along. And keep that oxytocin flowing. Yeah, yeah, we love the oxytocin. And so what's next? Is there something next on the list or on the agenda? Um, I'd like to go trekking in Nepal. Um, I haven't, I haven't put that together yet, but I'm, I'm looking at that. I, um, two people I know have recently climbed Everest. And so there's been some talk about that. Um, I'm very much enjoying the rock climbing and the, um, ice climbing, particularly because I'm terrified of heights and it has, 
made me sort of look at that fear and um, try to make peace with that fear. And when I'm able to do it, I feel such a surge of, of accomplishment that I want more of it. So I just keep looking for things like that. I'm also working on a novel right now that is straying into territory, like the Pablo Picasso quote you used earlier, that I don't know how to do what I'm currently trying to do. I don't know that I can do it, but I'm hoping in the act of trying to do it, I may discover that I do know how to do it. Um, and I won't know till I've done it or and the, failed. And the motorcycle maybe has given you the confidence to try. Absolutely, it sure did. And so the book is newly out in paperback. Yes. Harley and me, where can people get it? You can, um, Amazon, online, your local, I'm, I'm a big fan of local bookstores. Your local bookstore should be able to get it for you if they don't currently have it. It's available widely. Um, and uh, you can go to my website, uh, Bernadette-Murphy.com. And um, there's tons of essays and articles and um, more resources there if you're interested. All right, Bernadette. Thank you so much for coming Thank on the you. show. It's absolute pleasure having you and speaking with you and, a, and uh, a pleasure and inspiring to read your book. Thank you so much. <laughs>